This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hello, everybody. I really have to agree with Matt Staver from Liberty Council when he says he's running out of adjectives to describe how completely insane the tyrannical abuses launched by state governors and local officials against pastors and churches are becoming. The latest story is beyond anything I have yet reported to you on some of the unconstitutional measures directed at churches and Christians during this pandemic. Churchgoers must register with the government in Kansas City. That's the headline on the entry here on the Liberty Council website. But I want to go to some of the news stories about this particular measure. This is a measure that was put into place. The mayor, Quentin Lucas of Kansas City, Missouri, had put out this policy and houses of worship are being treated with the same restrictions as non-essential businesses in terms of keeping records about who attends a service or even anybody who enters the building. And the upshot of this whole thing is they're trying to do contact tracing and they want to make sure that they can follow ostensibly people who have had any sort of you know, coming down with a coronavirus and then they want to find out who those people had contact with. So it's all in the name of health. But here Metro Voice News reports this 10-10-10 rule is all about making sure that you limit the gatherings. So it says here, the new policy states, in-person religious gatherings may resume subject to the 10-10-10 rule or limited to 50 people outside, provided social distancing precautions are followed and event organizers maintain records of all attendees. The 10-10-10 rule is based on 10 people or 10% of the allowable number prescribed in the fire code, but only for those who remain in the building for longer than 10 minutes. But it's not the limit on people that has drawn the most concern. It's the record keeping. The new rule requires all churches to, quote, record the names, contact information, and approximate entry exit time of all customers who are on the premises for more than 10 minutes. Now, here's where it really gets draconian, because this does include churches and synagogues and mosques, along with some of the other businesses. Here's, here's where it really gets draconian. The businesses, or in this case, the churches, according to the reports, have to refuse entry to you if you balk at giving your contact information and your name. So imagine this. You want to go to a church. You're having a spiritual problem. You want to have somebody pray for you. You desperately want to convene with God's people. And they say, hand over your information. You know what? I don't even like doing that to cashiers who want my phone number. I don't know about you, but the less information that's out there about me, the better. And a lot of people feel that way. Look at all the stink that's been raised about Facebook and big tech tracking you and selling your information. People are creeped out by this kind of thing. It's big brother. And imagine walking into a church in Kansas City and being asked to do that. Sorry, Senator, you can't come in unless you're willing to register for the government purposes that are stated in this new policy. Are you kidding me? 
I mean, really, it's insane. I want you to listen to the Fox 4 report from Kansas City and, and listen to what they have to say here. This is Cut One. Kansas City is reopening for business, but Mayor Quint Lucas wants to prevent future COVID-19 outbreaks and make sure the city has the ability to attract those that do happen quickly. So as he told previously non-essential businesses they could go back to work on May 6th, he announced a 10-10-10 rule. That means businesses can only operate at 10% building capacity or have 10 people inside, including employees. And if you have people sitting for more than 10 minutes, be it at a barber shop, church, or restaurant, you have to have a log of all your visitors. This is this is a really challenging time to figure out where that line is um, of public health, you know, for the greater good, and then individual uh, privacy. Mayor Lucas says both the businesses allowed to open May 6th, like salons and flower shops, and those who will have to wait until May 15th, including bars, restaurants, and movie theaters, will have to keep that registry for 30 days to provide to the health department for contact tracing of the virus. Much in the same way that public health uh, releases data subject to the many rules that guide everything that they do, from testing to the spread of sexually transmitted diseases and a number of things where they often do maintain that amount of privacy is essential, uh, we will do the same thing with this type of registry. Registry. Does that make your blood run cold just a little bit? The government just wants you to register, Christians. Just register. We're only going to keep that information for 30 days. You only have to hand over those names if there actually is somebody with coronavirus. Somehow, I'm not going to sleep better at night in a Kansas City church knowing that, especially because there are people who are too quick to believe the government has our best interests at heart. They just want to do contact tracing. Well, if it were all about contact tracing, how come they exempted medical facilities and grocery stores? Walmart doesn't have to take your name and contact information when you walk through the door in order to buy your apples and your toilet paper. I thought they cared about contact tracing. Do you see what it is? It's overreach. It's unconstitutional. In fact, our friend Rich Bott, president of the Bott Radio Network, our wonderful affiliates, had this to say to the Metro Voice News. He said, this is outrageous on the part of the Kansas City municipal government officials. They're treating churches the same as businesses for COVID contact tracing purposes, This is a massive overreach, violating the sanctity of churches and the privacy of their attendees. This must not go unchallenged. And I agree wholeheartedly with Rich, and I agree with Matt Staver. He said these attacks on our churches cannot stand. The backbone of our country relies on our constitutionally guaranteed ability to worship and serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Liberty Council also says the churches must turn over their membership lists. The city is denying that. They spoke with Morgan said the director of communications for the mayor, who said that while houses of worship must make a list, they retain possession and control of the information unless a health emergency arises. Said said, we're not asking that churches provide a list immediately to the city. <laughs> we don't want it immediately. Churches keep the list and only if a member tests positive and that member attended a church function with the church provide a list to the city. Oh, okay. We feel so much better. Still unconstitutional, but thanks for clarifying that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And what about the penalties to all of this? Uh, enforcement also. What what happens? Are you going to have a bunch of police officers standing in the back waiting for somebody to walk in and sit there longer than 10 minutes and they're going to arrest people? I mean, what are you going to do about this? 
Well, the guidelines for these restrictions say that violations of any provision of this order constitute an imminent threat and create an immediate menace to public health and shall be considered a violation of this section under the city's code of ordinances. The city states it can fine churches and order them to suspend and assess other penalties, presumably jail time, as it outlines that the police will also have authority to enforce the policy. Oh, that'd be great PR for the city. Wouldn't it? Just have the cops raid the church. Hand over your contact information. We heard you had a sick person here. This is completely out of control. It is completely out of control. And those naive people who believe this is only about health, give me a break. Let's talk just for a very quick moment about what's going on in California. No doubt you have seen all of these beachcombers who are gathering in Huntington Beach, for example, and these videos are going viral of hundreds, even thousands of people who are standing on the beach and saying, no, we're, we're... protesting Governor Newsom and this lockdown. This is insane. Let us outside. Let us enjoy the fresh air. Let us go to the beach. What are you doing? And he's, oh, no, no. Newsom has chastised these shelter scoff laws saying the virus doesn't take the weekend off. Let me just remind you, Gavin Newsom was the same guy when he was the mayor of San Francisco who directed the city county clerk to issue same-sex marriage licenses in San Francisco, which was against the law. And it was a deliberate act of civil disobedience on the part of Gavin Newsom. He was playing fast and loose with the law because he wanted to be an activist. So why don't people remind Governor Newsom of how much he enjoyed civil disobedience when his pet project of so-called gay marriage was on the forefront of his mind in 2004, I believe it was. And, and what about Gavin Newsom uh, giving reprieve to more than 700 inmates on California's death row and ordering the state's legal killing chamber dismantled? That was back in May of 2019. This story here from the Daily News. I can't remember what which one this is. Sacramento Bee, I guess it is. Uh, and they were pointing out that when Proposition 17 passed by a two-to-one margin in 1972 enshrining executions in the state constitution, 44 years later, the Proposition 62 measure aiming to end capital punishment lost by a 52-48 margin. Right. But death penalty advocates blasted Newsom's reprieves as defying popular will. This guy is fine with defying the law when it's his leftist activism involved. These people have to be challenged, and they have to be challenged in court. And with freedom rallies, I totally believe it's necessary. We're going to come back on Janet Meffer today. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. This past week, a woman shared she feared being pregnant with so much going on in the world. The abortionist gave her an RU46 pill to terminate her pregnancy. Our Preborn Center was there for her, however, reversed the abortion pill and saved her baby. Our crisis line is flooded with women with similar stories. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn will be able to send 100 to clinics if this goal is reached. And you can help. Call 855-402-BABY. 
That's 855-402-2229. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. One of the good things that has come about during this pandemic shutdown is the opportunity that is there for evangelism. And that's something that Child Evangelism Fellowship has noticed as they began launching online good news clubs and offering online COVID-19 resources for children. And we're going to find out more about it now from Lydia Kaiser, spokeswoman for Child Evangelism Fellowship. Lydia, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Janet. Well, how has the COVID-19 shutdown affected you guys? Obviously, you have in-person good news clubs. That's been very much thrown up in the air, I know. But you have had some very ingenious responses, I would say, to the current situation with everybody closing down. What's been going on? Well, you're right. We have normally reached 25.5 million children a year with face-to-face ministries. So uh, with, with the... Uh, flagship program being the Good News Club that that meets after schools. With so with the school shut down, uh, all that just came to a screeching halt, and uh, we were left wondering if we had a ministry really. Hmm. Um, but something really miraculous happened. Uh, we were able to uh, quickly put together a manual to show club teachers how to do this online. We got it to South Korea first. Hmm. They were the first to beg for some sort of help. And then all of our international regional directors began to have it translated very quickly, and it's being used all over the world. Um, Some clubs are reporting crazy high attendance, like in Norway, Mm. over 1,000 children at the very first web club that was held. That's great. That's fantastic. When you talk about conducting everything online, obviously there are a lot of things you can do and can't do, but how are you doing these clubs online? Just basically, what is the approach that you're using in order to draw children to the web instead of an in-person gathering? Well, the Good News Club teachers know their students, and every student has to have parental permission to attend the club. So the teachers are emailing parents with the link saying, join us at the regular time. And so when the parents allow that link to be used, they are essentially giving permission. And then each club has a monitor who's watching the children and um, making sure different ones are muted when they need to be, 
um, making sure the teacher's aware if someone has their hand raised hmm. and helping to just facilitate the games and, and everything else that happens on that club. Wow. So it's basically like through a Zoom sort of situation where everybody's kind right. of on a screen. Got that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's several of those platforms like Easy Talks, and they're around the world. And yeah. So that, besides all of our online resources, which are interactive, it has been, um, it has opened new doors, really, that we expect to stay open after the pandemic is over. Well, that's good. You mentioned some of the online resources. I know one of the booklets that you offer is one that's called Do You Wonder Why? And it's all about addressing tragedy. Now, this is something I know you've used after 9-11, for example, and uh, there aren't a lot of opportunities normally to address a huge tragedy that affects all of society. But tell us a little bit about that booklet and how that's being used in the lives of some of these kids. Well, that booklet speaks directly to children about the emotions they experience due to natural disasters, illness or death of loved ones, crime, and so on. And we have uh, printed and distributed millions of those around the world in many languages. Um, But now we offer it online as a digital uh, free PDF download. People can go on there and just download it. Uh, It's also uh, a video and it's narrated by children themselves, so that's really cool. And and I've been hearing from even adults that they really appreciate it and have received comfort from it because it really just directly asks the really hard questions like, does God know and care about me? Why do so many bad things happen in the world? How could God allow this to happen? Hmm. And then after answering those questions, the booklet goes into guiding the child how to get through terrible circumstances, how to become part of God's family, and how to receive God's comfort. Right. Now, are you hearing back from some of your Good News Club leaders, for example, around the world about questions that children are having? It, what What are the questions that are really coming up from the kids involved with Child Evangelism Fellowship? I'm curious what kind of feedback you've been getting. Let, let me just read you a couple of emails that we got. This one um, came from Sri Lanka, and it says, another nine, I'm going to read exactly the way it came through. Okay. (laughs) Another nine years old girl received the booklet and has believed Jesus can answer any questions we ask why. That night, her father was bitten by a viper, and it was midnight and could not go to get medical help. So she has prayed over her father, asking Jesus to heal him. Next day morning, Father has found out that poison has not strike him, and he has gone to a church, and the whole family has accepted Jesus as Savior. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Here's, here's a little testimony from the Philippines from a mother. I am so thankful. Your resources helps me a lot minister my child. He can now pray, not only asking for something, but honoring and praising God, declaring his mighty works. That's great. That's really beautiful. And but you know, the, yeah, go ahead. The distribution of these these booklets has been amazing with the timing. Like out in the island of Tonga in the Pacific, they gave one to every school child, and then the schools were shut down, and then they were hit with a hurricane. Oh boy! So the timing was of the distribution was just 
amazing. That is amazing. Stories like that all over. Sure. And what about American kids who, uh, obviously, what's on everybody's mind right now is the coronavirus, and I'm sure a lot of children have questions. Have you heard a lot of feedback from people working with your clubs that kids do have a lot more questions now, or there's a lot more worrying among these children about what the Lord is doing? What are you hearing just right here in America? Absolutely. Well, um, besides the evangelistic tracks that we have for them, uh, we also have these Bible lesson correspondence courses. And so with school being closed down and the amount of homework being given minimal, um, a lot of children have signed up for Bible lesson correspondence courses. Oh, great. Now, that's one of the resources that we have on our website uh, that's for free. And uh, something we heard from the state of Maine was they reported more children returning the Bible lesson correspondence course than had been attending the Good News Clubs before this happened. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was shocking. Um, and In another country, uh, in Togo, West Africa, they distributed by hand, on foot, 4,000 of these uh, starter lessons, and over 2,000 came back within a few weeks, and over half of them, the children had said that they received Christ as Savior, oh. and their parents were participating with them. That's neat. So uh, these homeschool resources um, are being used all over the United States and all over the world, and um, as well as, for, for example, the tracks. One of them is evangelistic. It talks about um, how it, it parallels the, the virus with sin and says that there's something even more serious that we need to be concerned about because we can try to wash away the virus, but sin separates us from God right. forever. Right. And yeah. so um, it, it shares the gospel very clearly and gives hope and comfort for eternity. And then another tract uh, is more for saved children. It's titled Stop the Spread, <laughs> and it's talking about the spread of fear. Mm. And it talks about how, like, popping soap bubbles when you wash your hands. There are six fear busters from the Bible, and it goes through each of those. And, again, that's um, anybody can access that on our website, cefonline.com slash COVID-19. Great. That's really great. You, you also, I know, are encouraging parents and kids to do these stuck-at-home devotionals. I think that's a great name right there. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, these are specially selected from our Wonder devotional series to help children recognize that God is still in control and to give them practical help in relying on Him. Um, they... These, these devotional series are, we have two series, one for younger children and one for older. And again, people can, can get these resources at home. And you know, this is a really great time for families if they have never helped their children to establish a daily, personal, first thing in the morning devotional time with Jesus. This is the perfect time to get that started. It is. Yeah, you certainly have time, don't you, (laughs) right now? Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, make a new habit. Right. And and start start your day out focusing on putting your mind on the things that God wants you to think about. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I have a personal story, if we have time for that. Sure. Um, When 
when our children were ages 11 and down, my husband was diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. at age 41, and our lifestyle took a sudden change, and it could have been a really scary time for the kids. And so we tried to keep a positive outlook and, and did our best not to worry them. And one of the things we did was choose Psalm 103 as the passage our family would memorize over a few months. And so I wrote it on a whiteboard in the kitchen, and we read it together at mealtimes, and we challenged you know, each of the kids to kind of a little bit of a competition to see who could memorize the day's verse, and they'd stand there with their back to the board quoting it. But um, the passage ended with, The Lord has established his, his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. And our youngest child would throw up his hands with such exuberance, <laughs> especially with those final words, over all, that we all began doing it and ended with a big laugh and triumph, you know, at quoting this uh-huh. together. That's great. And even now, when we hear any verses from Psalm 103, we remember that really sweet time of family bonding while going through that ordeal. Yep, and that's... And so I just okay. want to challenge families that they can look, their children will someday look back on this time, either with angst and flashbacks of, that are negative, or with uh, realizing that that's when I first began walking closer with Jesus. I love that. Lydia Kaiser from Child Evangelism Fellowship. You can get resources at cefonline.com slash COVID-19. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. It's no secret that American religiosity is in rapid decline. One study published last year by the Pew Research Center showed that just 65% of Americans now identify as Christians compared to 77% recorded 10 years ago. And also the number of people without any religious affiliation at all has risen to 26%. What will our nation look like in the future if these trends continue? And are there some policies that we could put into place to help reverse the decline? That's what we're going to talk about today with Lyman Stone. He's an adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. And we'll be talking about a new AEI report that he's just put out called Promise and Peril, the History of American Religiosity and its Recent Decline. Lyman, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thank you. You have looked at a lot of data in this report to confirm the decline of religiosity in America. Can you tell us a little bit about what you discovered? Some people have this idea of America as a very religious country. Other people uh, seem to see it as a country founded in a secular vision. And what I find is that there's elements of truth to both of these stories, and there's also challenges to both of them. That, In fact, the United States today Uh, is not the most religious it's ever been, and it's not the least religious it's ever been. We've actually had a lot of historic variation in this, and a lot of that variation uh, doesn't boil down to, uh, you know, people having new rational ideas or spiritual awakenings or anything like that. A lot of it just boils down to changes in social conditions, government policies, and demographic fundamentals. That is, they're relatively... 
uh, mundane and worldly concerns tend to have a lot of influence um, on the otherworldly interests of religion. That is interesting. So when you're looking back at the history of religion in America, what were some of the things that stuck out for you in interpreting our current condition? Right. So what we can see is that when people have this memory of America as like a uniformly religious society, that was pretty much accurate as of, say, 1930 to 1970. Hmm. But that was the most religious America has probably ever been. Whether you look at affiliation, just the share of people who say they're Christian at all, or religious attendance, or denominational membership, however you look at it, that was a peak of religiosity. If you go back earlier, if you go to the 1780s, the period that led to our country being founded, you actually find far lower rates of religiosity than we have today. Yeah. You find pretty significant rates of atheism. You find very low church attendance, um, low church membership, all these things. What that tells us um, is that when we look at our founding documents, um, we should understand that while they have often governed a very religious society at various times, um, that they don't necessarily reflect uh, the religious vision that many Americans held, they may reflect, in many cases, a more secular vision of elites at that time. Interesting. Interesting. Do you see a big disparity in terms of the policies that were in place during that peak period that you mentioned, 1930 to 1970, versus some of the policies that we have on the books now that are actually undermining those things that would encourage religiosity? Absolutely. So what we see is that Religiosity is not declining because adults are just having this rational awakening. In fact, once people are adults, their religiosity tends to be fairly stable. And if anything, they tend to get slightly more religious over the course of their life. Hmm. Almost the entirety of secularization can be explained among children. That is, children are becoming more secular, and particularly during their school age years, so and particularly during high school. Um, So that raises the question is, what is happening to kids in their teens? Well, we can look at um, essentially a change in the primary environment that children were in. That If you look 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, children spent much less time in schools They spent much more time with their parents, specifically usually with one parent who might not be working in the workforce but might be staying home. And that parent might often have a significant religious influence on their child. Um, And also what we see uh, is that up until the last 50 or 60 years, schools were not as strictly secular, even public schools. So what we see is both that children are spending more time in more and more strictly secular environments, and they are spending less time in intention in environments that include intentional spiritual formation, whether that is the household, church, or um, schools with religious content. Yeah, now this is very significant because it's something that you point out in your report, the expansion of secular education, in particular the public schools, is one of the explanations for the decline in religiosity, as you just alluded to. 
you know, this is interesting because you have had a change in the public schools. I'm old enough to remember when I went to public school, we could actually sing Christmas carols and nobody sued us. And, you know, nowadays you could never get away with a lot of the things that were just kind of fine with everybody when you went to a public school back in the 70s. How do Mm -hmm. you deal with that, though, from a policy standpoint to encourage more religious Mm -hmm. liberty, to encourage religious values and those sorts of things? Well, I think we have to start from understanding um, that this trend didn't begin in the 1980s. Uh, This trend, the trend in declining religiosity associated with this reaches back to the earliest data we have. You can start to see it in the 19-teens. So this goes back a long way. Now, the other thing to understand is that this is not about rising education. Students who spend an extra year in a Christian school do not turn out to be more secular. Wow. Right? It's not that getting more education or being exposed to more information makes you uh, less religious. It's specifically the environment of more secular public schools. Yeah. But the fact that this trend begins all the way back in the 19-teens suggests that this isn't I mean, I'm sympathetic to you. You know, it's absurd that we have schools where you, it's, it's like you almost have to have a gag order about religion. <laughs> this seems absurd to me. But just going back to where we were in the 1950s or 60s in terms of our school politics isn't, isn't a solution, right? It's not actually going to fix this. Yes. What we need is actually to reach even farther back. We need to reach back to the educational environments that actually gave us increasing religiosity in America during the 19th century. Mm, Those educational environments often included extensive moral and spiritual formation, and not in some generic uh, public religion, not a lowest common denominator religion, but specific sects and denominations. Yes. Um, So I would argue that what we really want to see is not so much our public schools allowing more religious content, but we want to see a more competitive educational environment. Yes. We want parents to have choices in their schools. And we don't, want to, we, we don't want to force parents who may have secular beliefs, we don't want to force that child to pray. That That's going to cause problems, and we don't want to force religion on anyone. We just want to give all families a choice that they can have an educational environment that supports their values. And if you are an atheist, you should also have an option that supports your values. So I think what we need to do is we need to understand that that's not the system we currently have because we pay an enormous amount of tax dollars to go to public schools that have very strict rules, which means if you want a different type of education, you double pay for education. You do. Which isn't entirely fair. So what we need to do is simply try to restore uh, choice in education. What we need to do is give people options to select school environments that support the values that they have. And that means really we need to lean on school choice and we need to lean on financial support for families. So things like a child allowance um, and avoiding uh, tax penalties for marriage and things like this. Um, We need to do things that give families the financial flexibility to make choices that reinforce their values. Well, all of that is really good stuff. It's really important. And you you really got into something there that I want to expand upon when we come back from this break. And that is the issue of the expense of parochial or Christian schools and double paying for education in many cases and what policies could really help with that. We'll come back with Lyman Stone. 
His AEI report, Promise and Peril, the History of American Religiosity and its Recent Decline. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care. You'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to be talking with Lyman Stone. He is an adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of this report that we're talking about just out called Promise and Peril, the History of American Religiosity and its Recent Decline. And we were talking before the break, Lyman, about the decline in religiosity coming down in some of this academic literature to two explanations, one of which is the expansion of secular education. You mentioned that what we really need to do is to return to an educational environment that gave rise to to spiritual formation and, and religious formation, you know, a century or so ago, even more now. Um, and you mentioned this issue of more generous child allowances, you know, that can help with family budgets and have these vouchers and be able to allow families, if they want to, to send their kids to alternative schools that would have, in our case, a Christian worldview. But here's the problem. We're constantly running into, as you know, uh, objections to this from the left, and they are very much on the bandwagon. We, you know, separation of church and state. We can't allow your tax dollars to go right. for program. All these old arguments that have been going on for years. How do you answer some of that in a way that would really allow these policies to get a foothold and get passed and and get on with it? Because this has been discussed for so long, and yet here we still are. You know, I would first mention that a lot of school, a lot of states are moving towards more school choice. So this this argument is being won um, slowly, but it is happening. Um, There's actually a major Supreme Court case about this that should be decided 
this uh, quite soon um, that should rule on some of these programs. Um, so the, the argument is happening. It is slowly being won. We can also simply point to material benefits. There is a lot of evidence uh, stacking up that giving families more choice in schools uh, improves outcomes for students. Um, that regardless of the value side of this, that we don't want to trap, uh, say, minority students in low-performing schools. We want to give them options. Right. Um, this improves all schools. There's research suggesting that school choice programs even improve the quality of education of kids who remain in the old public schools. Huh. That it makes those public schools compete more and get more dynamic. So one way is we just, we just advance the, the benefit case for kids. Um, but another is I think we can actually speak to widely shared American values of pluralism. Um, no American child should be forced um, to be in an education system that inculcates a specific uh, spiritual or moral or quasi-spiritual value system. People should have a choice. Mm -hmm. We should respect liberty to choose on this, liberty of conscience. This is a bedrock American principle that is increasingly being violated in our public schools, that our public schools are becoming more and more focused uh, not on providing sort of, a, sort of a lowest common denominator civics system, but on really expounding a very specific worldview. And it's creating in, increasingly intense battles over curriculum. Yes. So what we can say is, look, we all hate the curriculum wars. We all hate this. It's lame. It's exhausting. <laughs> um, it shouldn't be necessary. So how about we agree to a ceasefire and we just send our kids to separate schools? Can we, can we just do that? Can we all agree that the, kid need, the kids need to learn math, they need to learn to read, they need to learn basic science so that they can, you know, they need to, you know, they need to learn some basic things. And, sure. and we can set things like that. But, but on a lot of issues, we don't need to agree. Right. We're Americans. We disagree. It's in our blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we appeal to pluralism. I should argue. I should mention that it's actually not only from the left that you get opposition on this. A lot of conservatives have concerns over school choice yeah. when you phrase it this way, True. because there's another implication here. It means that my taxpayer dollars are going to pay to send a Muslim kid to a madrasa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? We have to accept that. Yeah, you're right. If we're going to argue that we should be allowed to use taxpayer dollars to send our child to a denominational school, then we need to be, be prepared to accept that other religions are going to have the same liberty. And a lot of conservatives, and I, I don't love to, to say this, but a lot of conservatives aren't comfortable with that right now. Right. It turns out that pluralism is difficult for both sides to accept. But I think that that is the battle we need to fight. We need to argue that we live in a diverse society where we have to be tolerant of people we disagree with. We can't be snowflakes about this. We have to actually have some thick skin and accept that other people are going to do things we disagree with, and we just have to live with it. But it's fine as long as we can ensure that our children get the values that we want to share with them. Well, and you can look across the spectrum and see how our current 
situation is not ideal either. So no matter which way you sure. go, you know, obviously you have to acknowledge that what we're doing right now for millions of people isn't working. So that that's a really right. important point. Something else you mentioned, Lyman, was the decline in marriage is one of the factors that has been listed by these academics as, you know, leading to the decline in religiosity. What sorts of policies do you think could be implemented that would continue to shore up marriage and get behind the family? Because it, it really is the case with more and more and more broken homes, kids are paying the price, and there really is you know, a huge breakdown for society when the family falls apart. Yeah, uh, there's a variety of things that we can do. And, and the research connecting marriage to religiosity is, is quite solid. Uh, it turns out that um, one of the best predictors of whether a young person remains connected to religious life uh, is simply uh, their marital and childbearing behavior. Mm-hmm. That if you get married and have kids, you remain more attached to religious community. Yeah. So we want to encourage this, right? And also marriage has plenty of health benefits and economic benefits. It's beneficial to society for all these reasons. So the reality is marriage hasn't declined all that much among uh, better educated people, among right. higher status, more elite people. Uh, People like me who have graduate degrees, we still get married um, at similar rates as we did 50 years ago. Marriage has declined among working class people. Yes. And when we go looking for the reason why, it's not complicated. It's because we have all these programs that we've we've tried so hard to make sure that no one ever gets a benefit that they don't totally deserve that we've created a lot of marriage penalties. (laughs) So we've said, look, if you're a single woman – you can get a lot of welfare benefits. But if you get married, your husband should take care of you. So we're not going to give you welfare benefits. But what this does is this creates a marriage tax because it means you lose benefits if you get married. We punish people for making a good choice for their life. These these losses can be enormous. It can be literally tens of thousands of dollars of lost benefits. Um, Another thing we should be thinking about here um, is stuff like housing costs. Right. We need to make sure that we're not implementing onerous regulations limiting where you can build houses because this drives up housing costs and high housing costs tend to reduce marriage. Also, we want to make sure that we don't let deadbeats off the hook too easily. There's a lot of research that having strict requiring large alimony payments and having strict divorce rules has a beneficial effect on abortion rates. It reduces them on marriage. It reduces divorces. Um, and on child welfare. So we really want um, to make sure that, that we're, not, we're not letting deadbeats off too easily here. These are all policies um, that we can implement that will strengthen marriage, uh, support families. Of course, we should also uh, have a much larger child allowance. Children are our future. They are an investment uh, in society. Parents do not reap the reward, the full rewards of childbearing. Wider society reaps those rewards. So we should repay parents for the service that they are doing to society um, by providing a child allowance. Here, here. Um, I these love are that. all policies that will help support marriage. Yeah. And, you know, you look at this, you look at the demographic rates in the United States. We already know what they are in Western Europe, but we're beginning to see such a fall off in women having babies. And so we want to encourage babies, do we not? That's good for our society as well. How in the world are we going to keep all these entitlement programs afloat if you don't have more taxpayers? I mean, that sounds crude, but I mean it, you know, in many, many senses. That's one of the benefits. But shouldn't government be in the business of encouraging? encouraging families to be established and for children to come into the world. 
Sure. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes progressives hear this and they say, oh, that's, that's sexist or you're just, you know, it's, it sounds so regressive. But the way I like to think of it is that we actually have a lot of surveys where we ask people, how many kids do you want to have? And Americans reliably want two or three kids. The average American, the average reproductive age American woman wants about 2.5 kids. And yet she's only likely to have about 1.6 or 1.7. So when we say we want to encourage people to have kids, we're not trying to persuade them to have kids they don't want to have. We're not trying to like bully someone into having a child that they don't want. That's not what we're doing at all. Yes. The goal is not to persuade anyone to have a kid. The goal is to help people have the kids they already want to have. That is perfect, Lyman. That is great. Yep. We're just trying to support people's free choices. I love that. I love that. We got to go, but you got to check out Promise and Peril. You can check it out at AEI.org, the website of the American Enterprise Institute. Lyman Stone, thank you so much for being here, Lyman. It was great to have you. Thank you. All right. You take care. And thanks for listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.